Welcome to the LM Medi Law Podcast. Craig's Case Checker is created to keep you up to speed with the law of medical negligence, whether you're a solicitor, student, or curious observer. And so, what I'm wanting to primarily explore in this podcast today is firstly, I'll outline the facts of SD just so that you have a bit of context about what was going on. And uh, I'll give a brief outline of uh, what uh, Lady Wise decided in relation to the breaches of duty. And then from there, we'll kind of go into the heart of this uh, topic how Can versus Meadows uh, was decided by the Supreme Court and how, in turn, Lady Smith applied, if at all, it to um, this case in SD versus Grampian Health Board. Head to our website, lndemmedilaw.com, for more information. Hello everyone, I am Craig Christie. I'm one of the solicitors with LNM Medilaw. And uh, today is probably, hopefully, the first of many um, updates for medical negligence practitioners. And so what I hope to do in this series is to really kind of keep, um, well, you practitioners up to date on uh, all things medical negligence, and that's whether it's an actual medical negligence decision coming out of the court or any procedural matters from, say, the personal injury uh, courts, which could apply also to medical negligence. And uh, I I know myself, and I'm sure many of my peers would agree, that uh, trying to keep up the date with uh, the case law as it comes out can be quite a daunting task when you're... uh, uh, particularly busy. So I'm hopeful that uh, this series um, and moving forward will be of some assistance to you all. And uh, so starting uh, at that point, what I would like to discuss today is the case of SD versus Grampian Health Board, which only just came out uh, just last Thursday, which was the 8th of September 2022, in case you're watching this <laughs> in three years time. So what I'm going to discuss uh, about this case today in particular um, is quite an interesting point which the defenders had tried to make in their submissions at the end of it. Uh, many of you may be aware of the UK Supreme Court decision of Can versus Meadows, and um, that kind of looked into the scope of duty and uh, the, the so-called Sanko counterfactual And uh, the defenders tried to apply that to a clinical negligence case here relating to treatment or the omission of it. And so what I'm wanting to primarily explore in this uh, recording podcast today is, uh, firstly, I'll outline the facts of SD just so that you have a bit of context about what was going on. And uh, I'll give a brief outline of uh, what uh, Lady Wise um, decided in relation to the breaches of duty, although I won't go into much detail about that. And then from there, we'll kind of go into the heart of this uh, topic, you know, and how how Can versus Meadows uh, was decided by the Supreme Court and how, in turn, Lady Smith applied, if at all, uh, it to um, uh, this case in SD versus Grampian Health Board. So on that note, I shall commence by outlining the particular facts of SD. I mean, in in summary, it was on the 24th of August 2008 that the pursuer, uh, SD, uh, gave birth to her son, LD, at Aberdeen Maternity Hospital. Uh, Unfortunately, LD suffered severe acute um, asphyxia as a result of the compression of the umbilical cord, 
shortly before birth and consequential uh, quadriplegic disconnectic cerebral palsy, leaving him severely disabled. So just to clarify, what we mean by compression of the umbilical cord was essentially um, the, the cord wrapped around LD's uh, neck as he was being born, hence cutting off oxygen uh, to his brain, unfortunately. So the pursuer sought damages for the loss, injury and damage suffered by her son, uh, which she of theirs, uh, was caused by the negligence on the part of certain midwives at the uh, so-called Westburn Ward at Aberdeen Maternity Hospital and uh, some uh, unnamed doctors with oversight of the decision-making on Westburn Ward during ward rounds and uh, also of a Dr. Sripada, and please forgive me if I've completely mispronounced that name, uh, she was the obstetric registrar um, who was on uh, duty that night. And she was the one who took the decision about not to perform a cesarean section um, shortly before LD was born. And that's a, that was a critical point in terms of uh, both breach of duty and causation. So to elaborate further on the facts, uh, so it was on um, the 21st of August, 2008, that the pursuer was admitted to the Aberdeen Maternity Ward. And um, by this point, the pursuer was actually 13 days beyond her estimated delivery date. So she was taken in and upon ex uh, vaginal examination, uh, the so-called Bishop score was five and the pursuer's cervix um, hadn't dilated very much, if I remember rightly. Uh, in any event, she was provided a drug known as Prostin, which was essentially essentially designed to induce labour, to hurry it along. And so it was later that evening that a decision was uh, taken not to administer a second dose of Prostin uh, because the pursuer was contracting four times in 10 minutes. So it, it looked as, from their perspective, it looked as though she was progressing. Um, so the plan was to examine her in the morning and just take it from there. So on the morning of the 22nd of August, a CTG was commenced at uh, 8 a.m. And after 45 minutes, another vaginal examination was performed. The bishop score this time was six and cervical dilation was at one centimeter. Uh, one of the midwives uh, decided to do a membrane uh, sweep uh, instead of giving further prostin. Uh, likewise, she hadn't uh, sought medical review at this point. And so the pursuer's contractions uh, subsided by about 12.30 that day. And uh, from there, the, the CTEG was restarted at, excuse me, um, half four in the afternoon. And this ran for about an hour. Again, no further prostin was administered. There's a note at uh, five to eight in the evening uh, which made it plain that uh, there was contractions on palpation er of two every 10 minutes, but still there was no progress in terms of dilation. So again, no medical review was sought at this point and uh, nor was uh, prostin administered. At about uh, half past midnight on the 23rd of August, uh, the midwives noted that uh, the pursuer was having strong uterine contractions of three every 10 minutes. The pursuer had also spoke of a feeling of something trickling down her in her leg. So as a result, the midwife started to monitor this. Uh, later on, they noted that her bishop score had increased to seven 
and the trickling was noted to possibly be a, a meconium staining. Again, at this point, despite that, no medical review was sought. Um, another midwife noted the discharge on the pursuer's uh, sanitary pad, uh, recording that it may have been meconium or old blood. Again, no review was sought at this point. On further examination at 2.30 in the afternoon on 23rd of August, uh, this showed an increased bishop score of eight with cervical dilation unchanged. It was at this point that a decision was made to administer a second dose of prostin. Again, no review was sought. Paracetamol was then administered at five past three in the afternoon, and another CTG was commenced about 40 minutes later at a quarter to four. Again, no review. It was then at about 10.35 uh, uh, p.m. that midwife noted that there were early decelerations on the CTG, but which these responded well to a change in maternal position. And about uh, 45 minutes later, a vaginal examination was performed. It was noted that the bishop scored had gone back down to seven, and again, no progress with dilation. So at this point, a medical review was called for and Dr. Sripada came and saw the pursuer and decided she needs to go to the, la the uh, labor ward. So she was transferred to the labor ward at about midnight on the 24th of August. The CTG was recommenced and ran throughout the time that uh, she was on the labor ward. Uh, an amniotomy was then performed with difficulty and uh, at about 10 past two in the morning, um, grade two meconium was noted on the sanitary pad. Then at about uh, quarter to four in the morning, one of the midwives noted uh, the CTG to be suspicious. So she called on Dr. Sripada, who reviewed the CTG at 10 past four. She did a vaginal examination and found that the pursuer's cervix was uh, fully effaced, three centimeters dilated, and was well applied to the presenting part quite technical speak, but um, it, it kind of indicated that things were progressing. Um, Dr. Sripada then considered whether or not a cesarean section was appropriate in the circumstances. Um, having interpreted the CTG, she decided no, one was not required, but she decided just to continue monitoring the CTG and to review in half an hour's time. However, at about uh, 4.36, the fetal heart rate dropped suddenly and uh, the midwives had noted a fetal bradycardia. Uh, about 10 minutes later, Dr. Sripada was then called and attended at about um, 04.53. Uh, immediate action was taken to deliver the baby, which occurred at about quarter past five in the morning. But as I say, unfortunately, uh, LD, the, the baby who was born, uh, suffered uh, brain damage uh, due to the cord compression. And so, like I say, I'm not going to go into much detail about the reasons why um, Lady Wise reached her decisions on breach of duty, but it, it will suffice to say um, that she found there was no breach of duty at all uh, in relation to the care which was provided to the pursuer. Um, and also in ensuring LD was born unharmed. But to maybe summarize the position, with regard to the midwifery care, the overriding contention by the pursuer was that the induction of her labor 
and subsequent delivery was delayed unreasonably. So you may remember that there was a lot of talk about Prostin not being administered again after the first one for quite a while. And also generally no, no medical review sought until fairly late in the day. And um, as a consequence, the decision to transfer the pursuer to the labor ward was um, delayed as well. Ladywise had found that there was no breaches of duty in respect to any of that. Um, she considered that the ladywise, excuse me, she considered that the midwives could have progressed the pursuer's labor quicker, but overall it didn't amount to a breach of duty. Um, with regard to the obstetric case, uh, the pursuers were essentially arguing that Dr. Sripada was negligent in failing to organize a cesarean section when she was reviewing the CTG at 10 past four in the morning on 24th of August. So according to the pursuer, the, the trace, the CTG was showing something which was pathological, that something very bad was going wrong and that therefore indicated the need for a cesarean section. The defenders on the other hand, um, led evidence to say that the trace was actually quite normal and was at worst suspicious. And based on the expert evidence, which Lady Wise heard, she considered that this was just one of those situations where she could not really say for certain um, whether the opinions of each expert um, was erroneous or um, she couldn't actually decide which uh, position she preferred. So it was one of these uh, honish um, situations, um, which I'm sure I hope uh, you're all aware of. And um, it was agreed between the experts for both parties that reasonable obstetricians could easily differ on the interpretation of the CTG at that time. So overall, ladywise, had to find that there were two different but equally supportable interpretations of the critical CTG trace. Therefore, it was reasonable to classify the trace as suspicious but not pathological. And therefore, Dr. Sripada could not be said to have acted negligently by opting to continue monitoring and not uh, arrange a cesarean section. The final um, case which the pursuers had um, uh, well, pursued, was uh, in relation to uh, the decision-making on ward rounds. So essentially they contended that if evidence of the ward rounds, what was going on in them, what was done, was accepted, then their position was that the medical decisions being made on those rounds was negligent. And um, given, but given their overriding contention that there was a failure to administer Proston earlier, seek medical review and then transfer the pursuer to the labor ward, um, the pursuers felt that it was strongly implied that the advice of the doctors on the ward rounds fell below the standards uh, in their duty of care. So, so in other words, it's likely that um, the pursuer's condition and her progression in labor was being discussed on ward rounds by the doctors and so in their failing to um, instru instruct or arrange more prostin to be provided or for further review and transfer to labor ward, they fell below the standard of care owed to the pursuer. Um, Lady Wise accepted the evidence on the ward rounds, but considered that nothing there showed there to be negligence. 
Um, to her mind, it was clear that the procedure was discussed by the doctors. No one was unhappy with the decisions that they were making, or um, nor did any of them suggest an alternative um, intervention or treatment. So on that basis, Lady Wise um, felt that there was no breach of duty in relation to that case as well. So that's that's really a summary of the breaches, um, maybe slightly longer than I would have planned. But now we move on to you know the core the core of this um, recording podcast, um, which speaks about the scope of duty and causation in the case. Now, obviously, it's not particularly important from a, um, in terms of the final decision reached by Lady Wise, because in the end, she found no breach. So therefore, she doesn't have to consider causation, but she did anyway. And um, in doing so, she, um, she had to consider a fairly novel argument by the defenders. They argued that Essentially, the Supreme Court case of Khan versus Meadows applies to the to the situation to the criticisms of the midwives. Now, I think before I really get into the nitty gritty of what exactly the defenders were arguing, it would probably help if I uh, give a bit of context and explained uh, what the decision of Khan versus Meadows actually was. So. Moving on to um, looking into that case in a bit more depth. In Can versus Meadows, uh, the appellant, Ms. Meadows, attended her GP practice and consulted with Dr. Can specifically to find out if she had the hemophilia gene and what impact that may have on her if she were to become pregnant. Um, Dr. Can uh, had instructed the inappropriate tests um, to actually determine whether she was a carrier of the gene. This obviously led to a negative result. And so uh, the Ms. Meadows was advised that you, do, you don't have the gene, you can uh, crack on and get pregnant and you'll be fine. And uh, so as a result of that advice, uh, Ms. Meadows uh, a few years later became pregnant, um, but as it turned out, she did have the haemophilia gene and she, uh, she gave birth to uh, a child with haemophilia and autism, which is the kind of crucial part in this. So she was arguing that um, if she knew she had haemophilia, then she would never have had the pregnancy and therefore she would not have had to incur the costs of raising a son uh, with both haemophilia and autism. So she was suing for the cost of raising the child with both of these conditions. And so what, what the Supreme Court was asked to look into was essentially whether the damages for raising a child with autism, something which was not um, specifically predicted, um, could be uh, falls within the scope of duty of care of Dr. Khan in this situation. And uh, the, the respondents for doc, Dr. Khan, in other words, was arguing that the so-called SAMCO principle applied in this situation. So before I go into the, again, the nitty gritty, um, it'd be helpful to kind of outline what exactly um, the court explored um, as a whole in that decision, because it, essentially what this case was looking at was determining liability in uh, cases um, where damages are being sought for negligence. 
and ordinarily, as many of you will know, it's usually the case of uh, duty of care breach and uh, damages. Fairly, fairly straightforward. But in the in this case, the Supreme Court outlined that there was actually six elements which uh, one had to consider um, when determining uh, liability in these cases. And these six questions are as follows. Question one, is the harm, which is the subject matter of the claim, actionable in negligence? This is known as the actionability question. Two, what are the risks of harm to the claimant against which the law imposes on the defendant a duty to take care? That's known as the scope of duty question. Number three, did the defendant breach his or her duty by his or her act or omission? The breach question. Number four, is the loss for which the claimant seeks damages the consequence of the defendant's act or omission? That's the factual causation question. Number five, is there a sufficient nexus between a particular element of the harm for which the claimant seeks damages and the subject matter of the defendant's duty of care as analysed in stage two above? And this is known as the duty nexus question. Lastly, number six, is a particular element of the harm for which the claimant seeks damages irrecoverable because it is too remote or because there is a different effective cause? You know, for instance, novus actus intervenience in relation to it or because the claimant has mitigated his or her loss or has failed to avoid loss, which he or she could reasonably have been expected to avoid. And this is known as the legal responsibility question. Um, the court explores all of these uh, questions in some depth as to, you know, what what the, what the basis of them is, but I'm not going to do that, lucky for you. I'm going to focus on probably the more Two important questions in this case, which was in relation to question two, the scope of duty question, and question five, the duty nexus question. So in relation to scope of duty, the court found, based on uh, precedence, of course, that uh, it was an established principle that the law addresses the nature of the extent of a duty of care in these cases. Um, they quoted Lord Denning in Roe versus Minister of Health as saying, is the consequence fairly to be regarded as within the risk created by the negligence? If so, the negligent person is liable for it, but otherwise not. And as we all know from cases in relation to pure economic loss and psychiatric injury, the law considers the nature of the damage when assessing uh, the scope of duty of care. So, for instance, pure economic loss, which kind of comes into play later in this case, um, for valuers cases, for instance, uh, the, the scope of duty of care is limited depending on what exactly uh, the valuer was uh, doing on behalf of the claimant. Was it just a bit of advice or were they directing them on how to make a decision in relation to their finances? Um, likewise, with psychiatric injury, you have to establish a lot of um, little uh, interactions and relationships here and there before it really applies. Um, the court then goes on to um, look at the so-called SAMCO principle, which was a decision by the House of Lords in 1997. And uh, this is described as where a defendant is not liable in damages in respect of losses of a kind which fall outside the scope of their duty of care. The court says that this is more of a counterfactual question and is in fact more like uh, the quest uh, question number five, which again, I'll be exploring a little later. 
And they, they made it quite clear, though, that this duty nexus question or the SAMCO counterfactual is used in some but not all circumstances. So it's not it's not the case in addressing each of the six questions that you have to use question five or answer question five or even ask it. Um, if, if the duty of care and the scope of it is very clear, then there's no need to uh, look into whether or not any damages suffered fall out with the scope of that duty. So, I mean, quite often the, the whole notion of the SAMCO counterfactual arises when the quantification of damages is a bit more complicated. As I say, if, if it looks as though the damages fall out with the scope of duty, then that's where SAMCO actually kind of comes in. And Lord Sumption summarised uh, the position of all of this in the Hughes-Holland decision, stating that the two fundamental features in the reasoning in SAMCO were, one, where the contribution of the defendant is to supply material which the client will take into account in making his own decision on the basis of a broader assessment of the risks, the defendant has no legal responsibility for his decision. And two, the scope of, scope of duty principle has nothing to do with the causation of loss, as that expression is usually understood in the law. So with respect to the first feature, Lord Hoffman and Samco drew a distinction between the provision of advice and, on the other hand, information, um, but said that, that these weren't ex mutually exclusive categories. Essentially, what the court's going to be doing is to try and identify the purpose for which the, that advice or information was given to the claimant or pursuer. Ultimately, it depends on the extent to which the provider of the information or advice has contributed to the claimant's overall decision-making process. And you know, having said that, you may see where this comes into play in Cannes versus Meadows. So where the advisor is not guiding the whole decision-making process, the duty nexus question becomes important because the court must then separate out from the loss which the claimant is seeking damages for um, from that which the negligent advice is attributable. So that's scope of duty, even though it kind of looks at <laughs> duty nexus question quite a bit. But moving on to that, um, as I say, the it can be answered fairly straightforwardly, probably in most cases, that the defendant or defender has unquestionably a duty of care to prevent harm to the claimant or protect, protect or reduce the risk of it at the very least. And as I say, there will be times that the harm suffered will actually fall outside the scope of the duty of care. Um, it also applies where the quantification of damages um, brings that particular uh, issue up. <clears throat> so when that happens, the, the duty nexus question comes into play. And uh, in Samco, Lord Hoffman stated the matter thus. It is that a person under a duty to take reasonable care to provide information on which someone else will decide upon a course of action is, if negligent, not generally regarded as responsible for all the consequences of that course of action. He is responsible only for the consequences of the information being wrong. A duty of care which imposes upon the informant responsibility for losses which have occurred, even if the information which he gave had been correct, is not, in my view, fair and reasonable as between the parties. The principle thus stated distinguishes between a duty to provide information for the purposes of enabling someone else to decide upon a course of action and a duty to advise 
someone as to what course of action should be taken. If the duty is to advise whether or not a course of action should be taken, the advisor must take reasonable care to consider all the potential consequences of that course of action. If he is negligent, he will therefore be responsible for all the foreseeable loss, which is a consequence of that course of action having been taken. If his duty is only to supply information, he must take reasonable care to ensure that the information is correct, and if he is negligent, will be responsible for all the foreseeable consequences of the information being wrong. So that really sums up in a nutshell what, what the SAMCO counterfactual is all about. So really, the, the question that you've got to be asking if that problem arises is, what would the claimant's loss have been if the information which the defendant in fact gave had been correct? So the question is not whether the claimant would have acted differently if the advice was correct. Rather, the counterfactual assumes that the claimant would behave as he did in fact behave and asks whether if the advice had been correct, the claimant's actions would have resulted in the same loss. So from, from asking that question, the court can then ascertain the loss attributable to the information being wrong. In some circumstances, it is important, excuse me, appropriate to use this counterfactual. In others, it's not because, as I said before, the scope of duty question may identify a fair allocation of risk between the parties without the counterfactual being used. Now, it was argued by Ms. Meadows in this uh, case that the Samco principle primarily uh, arising from valuers negligence cases shouldn't actually apply to clinical negligence. But uh, the UK Supreme Court held that there was actually no principle basis for excluding clinical negligence from the scope of duty principle or even the counterfactual um, uh, question or duty nexus, I should say. As, uh, as Lord Sumption had noted in Hughes-Holland, the scope of duty principle is a general principle in law. Uh, in the law of damages. So it can, therefore you can't really argue that it just doesn't, just simply doesn't apply to clinical negligence. But uh, the court does acknowledge that in many and probably a high majority of cases of clinical negligence, the application of the scope of duty principle results in the conclusion that the type of loss or element of a claimant's loss um, is within the scope of duty of the defender. And, uh, without actually having to apply SAMCO. For example, the, the court, um, quite conveniently, for the purposes of uh, SD, um, made the following points. The negligent care of a mother in the final stages of pregnancy can sadly have the result of the birth of a baby with brain damage, and the defendant is normally liable to pay compensation for both the injury and the consequential additional cost for the disabled child. In the cases of Parkinson and Groom, um, the, the object of the service being undertaken was to prevent the birth of any child, um, as in each case, the mother did not want to have any more children. In Parkinson, the service undertaken was to prevent a pregnancy, while in Groom, the task uh, which should have been performed was to make sure that the mother was not pregnant, notwithstanding her recent sterilization. In both cases, the added economic costs of caring for a disabled child, whatever his or her disability, were within the scope of the defendant's liability because of the nature of the service which the defendant had undertaken. In none of those cases did the Samco counterfactual have a role to play. 
but it is necessary in every case to consider the nature of the service which the medical practitioner is providing in order to determine what are the risks or risks which the law imposes a duty on the medical practitioner to exercise reasonable care to avoid. That is the scope of duty question. So in applying these principles to the facts in Khan v Meadows, they did acknowledge that in terms of factual causation, but for Dr. Khan's negligence in advising Ms. Meadows that she did not have the haemophilia gene, her son would not have been born and hence would not have had uh, autism as well. But to their mind, the, question, the, the answer to the factual causation question didn't provide the full answer on scope of duty of care. So the foreseeability of the boy being born with autism and haemophilia were relevant considerations. It was acknowledged that autism was a foreseeability of pregnancy and birth, but this didn't determine the scope of duty question. And as they said, the scope of duty principle is um, dependent on principally the nature of the service which the defendant was undertaken to provide. So the question was, what is the risk which the service which the defendant undertook was intended to address? So in this case, essentially, Ms. Meadows had come in to see Dr. Khan specifically to ask about the haemophilia gene and to be tested for it. And so looking at looking at the nature of the service which Dr. Khan was providing, i.e. to advise on haemophilia, they, they held that the scope of duty for Dr. Khan's actions was purely that, to advise on the haemophilia gene and whether or not Ms. Meadows had it. As a result, if one applies the counterfactual question, would the outcome have been the same if Dr. Khan's advice was actually correct, that um, the mother did not have haemophilia? And the answer to that is yes, he'd have been born with autism, albeit without haemophilia. So having come to that conclusion, the court said that the doctor can was only liable for any costs related to haemophilia and not autism. A lot of it makes sense, but um, it's interesting to it's an interesting decision and certainly helps to, to clarify how we all should be approaching the question of negligence and uh, uh, whether whether or not a defender is liable. But uh, applying so. As I say, this was actually used in SD versus Grampian Health Board by the defenders uh, in their submissions. And so I'll now go back to that and see exactly what they had said and argued. So keeping all of these principles in mind, and I hope that you remember them, <laughs> but uh, the defenders argued that even if it could be proven that uh, the child in SD uh, would have been born uninjured, there was a scope of duty issue which was overlooked as distinct from the usual but for test. So the defenders queried why any midwife who saw the patient um, on the 22nd and the 23rd of August in the induction ward for the purposes of managing that induction would be responsible for the injuries that LD subsequently suffered in the following day in the labor ward caused by something that could not be predicted even minutes before um, 42 uh, past four in the morning. 
So the question whether the breaches of duty of the midwives, if there were any, um, could have resulted in liability for all injuries which LD had suffered prior to birth, regardless of the cause. So essentially, they're, they're trying to argue that the counterfactual comes into play here because, to, to, to their mind, the actual damage caused was unrelated to the role and scope of duty of the midwives. So to their mind, given that the midwives had no continuing involvement with the pursuer in the labour wards, their obligations ceased on the pursuer's transfer there. It was not part of their service um, that they provide uh, to secure the, the delivery of the baby, and they cannot therefore be regarded as having assumed responsibility for that. The care for the delivery was um, by different midwives and Dr. Sripada. So they concluded that a midwife had undertaken a particular restricted role in the in the, in the in the delivery of LD. Um, the, and the risk of an outcome unrelated to that role will not, as a general rule, fall within the scope of their duty of care. So they, they do try to apply Khan and Meadows quite directly um, to, to this situation. The pursuers contended that um, in, the, in the record, the defender had admitted that uh, had LD been born by uh, 50 minutes past four um, that morning, he would probably not have suffered any brain damage. As a consequence, um, the pursuer's expert did not give evidence on the nature of the relationship between the midwife's breaches and the ultimate outcome. And this is quite important, as I'll, as I'll highlight. Um, nonetheless, the pursuers contended that each witness accepted that there was an increased risk of cord, excuse me, cord compression where there is a prolonged pregnancy. So these alleged breaches of duty happened against that background. To the pursuer's mind, Canvey Meadows was not in point because there was unchallenged evidence about the link between prolonged pregnancy, cord progression, excuse me, cord compression and stillbirth. They felt that it was quite a novel argument to try and distinguish um, induction of labour from delivery. Um, to their mind, the duty of care incumbent on everyone involved in this was to avoid the risk of injury or stillbirth to the child. So this meant that their duties extended up to that. It wasn't restricted to simply inducing labour, and that was that. Having considered all of that, Lady Wise nonetheless concluded that the harm to LD was actually too remote from his time on the induction ward for there to be a sufficient nexus between any breaches on the part of the midwives and the outcome. Now, she accepted up to a point that induction and delivery are linked to the extent that they cannot be deemed as two distinct services. So that's um, one part of the Khan Meadows argument by the defenders kind of knocked out of the park there. She, she said that there was a general duty on the midwives to take account of risk factors and not to prolong the induction beyond acceptable timeframes without good reason. However, she goes on to state that where the case essentially failed was not so much in the application of the counterfactual um, question, but more on causation. She noted that 
the pursuers essentially uh, failed to lead any evidence to demonstrate that the breaches of duty of the midwives on the induction board had actually affected the ultimate outcome. She said there was no evidence of what would have happened had the pursuer been transferred to the labour ward earlier, nor was there any evidence of the effect which um, an earlier dose of prostin would have had on labour. Um, uh, there was no evidence of how long the pursuer would have been on the labour ward without further intervention, uh, assuming that continuous CTG uh, monitoring gave no cause for alarm. To her mind, the accepted risks of prolonged pregnancy were just very, very general. And so as a, as a result, she couldn't possibly say that there was a link between the prolonged pregnancy and the induction ward and the ultimate outcome. And this is notwithstanding um, the pursuer's contention that it was admitted on record that birth before 10 to 5 would have resulted in the child being born uninjured. In the end, they didn't prove what would have happened had she been transferred to labor ward earlier. You know, and I'll explain what, what questions arise from that. But um, in terms of the obstetric case, Lady Wise was quite clear that no scope of duty issues arise from that. There was a very clear direct link between alleged uh, between the alleged breaches of Dr. Sri Pada and the outcome. So some may, some may look at that decision and think, hmm, has Lady Wise actually applied Cannon Meadows to the circumstances here? From looking at it, I think she really hasn't in the end. See, as I said before, she essentially um, rejects the argument by the defenders that there were two distinct services. And so the scope of duty of the induction midwives was different to that of the, of the delivery midwives. I think while she doesn't um, express it, I think, um, at least to my mind, I would agree with the pursuer's contention that the, the, over, the overriding duty of care owed by the midwives from the start of induction through to delivery is to ensure that the child is born unharmed. I, uh, I fail to see how, how you could really divide it into two distinct services with two distinct um, duties of care. To me, that just simply doesn't work. Um, it's also worth noting that um, you may remember from the Cannes Khan and Meadows decision that uh, there's reference to nexus. And uh, her ladyship does refer to, the, to a sufficient nexus being absent. Um, with respect to the link between the midwives' uh, alleged breaches of duty and the ultimate outcome. But to me, I think that wording is a little misleading on her part because in the end, she held against the pursuers based on factual causation, um, nor did she, she doesn't, she, as I say, she doesn't agree that there's two distinct scope of duties um, or duties of care, I should say, and nor does she ask any counterfactual questions in the circumstances. I mean, in the end, she, she, she didn't have to because factual causation was not established. So you don't have to look at uh, what damage actually fell within the scope of duty of the midwives. And overall, as I say, I think, I think the defender's attempt to employ Meadows and, excuse me, Cannon Meadows into this type of case um, was a little misguided. As I say, I don't think you could 
plausibly argue that the um, service of induction midwives was distinctly different from that uh, duty of care of that service of uh, the labor midwives, delivery midwives, I should say, and uh, Dr. Suripada. The overriding goal is the same. So uh, in any event, Lady Wise seems to accept that they, they can't be seen as distinct in a general sense. Also, I think it's worth noting that the defenders tried to argue that the particular outcome was not not a risk which was um, that fell within the scope of duty of care for the induction midwives. And while while um, Lady Wise did find that the um, that general risk between prolonged pregnancy and um, a brain damage and stillbirth was a bit general, I think that was mainly because not much evidence was led on the on the link. But I think it could be said. Um, by most uh, medical practitioners in that field that stillbirth and even perinatal mortality are foreseeable outcomes of prolonged pregnancy. So from that perspective, you can't argue that um, the role of the, in, uh, of the induction midwives is somehow separate from that outcome. It falls within the scope of their duty of care, in my view. Um, you know, and it's also helpful that um, the, the court in Can versus Meadow actually um, gave the example of birth damage cases as indicative of um, the scope of duty of care being very clear cut, um, which, I, I, as I say, I think that says a lot. I mean, notwithstanding the decision of Lady Wise, I mean, I, th I think overall pursuers, um, I mean, it's a shame uh, for, for them, obviously, that they, they, they failed to prove their case, but in terms of the application of can and meadows, I think pursuers practitioners could um, breathe a sigh of relief. Um, in the end, to my mind, Lady Wise doesn't quite apply it in the way that the defenders had hoped to. Um, nonetheless, though, I think the fact it was even considered and argued by the defenders will embolden defenders to, to uh, try and apply that case. I, for one, don't believe that it will really come up in cases where it's uh, criticizing particular treatments. For instance, if it was a surgeon who, um, uh, I don't know, negligently caused injury uh, during a procedure. Um, to, going, going through Cam versus Meadow, the duty nexus question which comes up, the SAMCO principle seems to only naturally arise where the damage has derived from decisions or actions which the pursuer makes and not the actions of a defender. So if you think about where this principle has stemmed from, it's about um, the provision of information or advice, which then leads to um, the claimant or pursuer making a particular decision. So you can see why it applied to the situation in Canvey Meadows and hence why it could apply to a clinical negligence case. But in terms of applying it to a situation like this, the one in SD, I think that'll be far more tricky for the defenders simply because the duty of care for doctors and other medical practitioners is often overriding and generally the same, cure, recover, uh, prevent further harm to the patient. That's quite an all-encompassing duty of care. So I find it hard to think of a case in, in relation to treatment or, or lack of where um, the SAMCO counterfactual could really come into play. Um, where it could come into play is possibly consent cases and any any um, situations like that in uh, Canvey Meadows. Um, 
I think uh, for consent cases, you might not have to worry too much about that. And I think that's because the nature of the service which the doctor's providing there is to actually guide the patient in making a decision about treatment based on the risks, the material risks of that. So, so again, in relation to the provision of, say, surgery and the outline of risks, I think, I think the nature of the relationship is such that the scope of duty of care for the doctor providing the advice is actually very clear cut that if this particular risk, which they don't mention, materializes, then they'll be liable for the full damages as opposed to simply damages for that specific um, uh, injury occurring which is essentially what um, the SAMCO principle is trying to address. Um, but no doubt there will be situations where patients are going in to see doctors and they, um, they get a bit of advice before making a decision about their health later on, which may or may not lead to some kind of injury. If that happens, I think that's where the SAMCO counterfactual could come in. So... Um, that's all for me. I hope that you found this informative. And, um, you know, of course, if you have any questions uh, or like to discuss this in any way, you can contact me by email at ccristy at lemac.co.uk. That's ccristy at lemac, L-E-M-A-C dot co dot UK. Thank you for listening and I'll see you again soon. Head to our website, lndmmedialaw.com, for more information.